Hey everybody, and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the Fangirl Radio Show. I'm your host, Jessica Dwyer, and this episode is a long time coming, and my apologies for the delay, but I promise to make up for it with two great interview segments. Um, As this is the season finale for Happen Leonard, we will be having our interview with Jim Mickle, who is one of the series runners and uh, he is fantastic for bringing this show to us. I have been a huge Joe R. Lansdale fan for years and specifically Happen Leonard and if you're not watching Happen Leonard there's something wrong with you and uh, you really need to let it be known that you want uh, Sundance to bring this show back for another season. I believe there's a rumor that it has been renewed but you never know. So Please, please, please. These books are fantastic. This show is great. Everyone involved with it is amazing. And uh, this is a great interview. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Jim is a true, um, true great guy. He uh, brought Stakeland to us. He's He does great work. And this show is just, man, it, it, it nails you when you do, least expect it. So I'm really excited to uh, bring my interview with Jim to you, finally. <laughs> Um, also in this episode, um, we will be talking to the creator of The Tick and the new Arthur, Ben Edlund and Griffin Newman. Uh, I recorded this when the uh, series, uh, second part of series one came back on Amazon, and it was really fun to talk to these guys. Uh, the new series of The Tick uh, is fantastic on Amazon. It is really well done. And the interesting thing is, um, there's two ticks helping produce it, Peter Serafinowicz and um, the awesome Patrick Walburton are two of the producers, as well as Serafinowicz is playing the tick. I can only imagine having Walburton show up as another character or an alternate universe tick in this show. If that happens, I'd probably plot. Um, but before we get to those interviews, uh, we have some Weekend Geek to get over, um, and I am i just ecstatic about this news that came out this week. Uh, as you know, Joe Bob Briggs is a friend of the show, and we love him. Um, he makes it sound like we love him a little more than normal. Um, but uh, I'm really excited to announce that uh, the man himself said this at the Chattanooga Film Festival. Joe Bob's coming back to TV. He is going to be on Shudder. That's the uh, pay service for streaming horror films, horror series, all kinds of good stuff. Shudder's great. Um, basically, it's Netflix for horror fans. And uh, they are starting to do more original content. And what they're doing is something that people have been begging for for years. And they're bringing Joe Bob back to the drive-in. So it's really, really awesome. Um, starting in June, uh, there's going to be a 24-hour marathon of intros, outros, and drive-in totals of classic, I believe it's the classic stuff of Joe Bob's uh, Monster Vision or Joe Bob's Drive-In. <clears throat> and uh, they're going to be starting a Friday in June. And uh, I don't know which Friday. That hasn't really been announced yet. But coming this June... Joe Bob is coming back to the drive-in, and that is where he belongs forever. So I'm really, really excited about that. Um, so if you don't subscribe to Shutter, you're probably going to want to. And it really is a cool service, and they've got a lot of really great content on there. Um, also coming back in June, just announced literally, I think last night, um, I heard that Seth Rogen called into The Talking Dead um, to announce this, and that is Preacher is coming back for season three on June 24th. June's a great month. It's my birthday month. It's also Joss Whedon's birthday month. But June 24th is a special day because we get Preacher back, and I am very stoked about that. Um, And kind of hopping off of the Preacher bandwagon, uh, there was another announcement uh, regarding a comic book, and that is the awesome The Boys, written by the same man who brought us the wonderful preacher, Garth Ennis. And uh, that is the fact that they have, um, they have cast the butcher in that. And and that is going to be played by Carl Urban. Uh, So that's pretty freaking sweet. Um, I am sort of sad that we're not going to be getting, um, 
Wee Huey is not going to be played by Simon Pegg, and that kind of was a given that that wouldn't be happening. But uh, I'm very stoked for Carl Urban to be playing Butcher. You can't really... Um, that's really great. I always pictured uh, Michael Madsen, but I'll, I'll take this. That's fine. Uh, and if you're wanting to know who's going to be playing Wee Huey, it's a, a gentleman by the name of Jack Quaid. Um, and he's actually the son of Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid, surprisingly. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy right now. He's also in Rampage, too, so, and Logan Lucky. But, uh, yeah, he's going to be playing the role that was uh, basically, I guess, played by um, Simon Pegg in the comics. That's not a, a secret. But, yeah, so Carl Urban's going to be Billy Butcher, who, I, like I said, I always saw... Uh, Michael, they waited too long. It took too long for this to finally happen. I'm amazed that it's happening at all. Um, but so uh, it is going to be done by kind of going back to the whole Garth Ennis, Seth Rogen thing. It is going to be developed by Eric Kripke, Evan Goldberg, and Seth Rogen. So you do have the crew behind Preacher making this, which means they're not going to pull any punches. It's going to be as exactly insane as you think it should be. And I'm happy about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, let's see. What else do we have? Um, do, 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 do. Solo. Um, I have a list because there's a lot that's happened in between the last time you've heard from me. Solo got a trailer released yesterday. It's kind of troubling to me that this is I think only the second full trailer this movie has has had since, you know, you typically would be pushing these films. Uh, I don't know if it's that Disney thinks, oh, it's a Star Wars film. It's okay. It'll it'll sell itself. We don't really have to worry about it. But this is only the second full trailer that we have gotten of for Solo in the entire time that we've been waiting for it. And the movie comes out next month. Now, granted, this trailer looked a lot better. I, I don't know if it's because, you know, the movie was besieged with problems and was really behind. And maybe the reason they haven't released these trailers is due to the fact that they were behind. And it took time to get the effects up to par for even the bits in the trailer. Um, that could definitely be the case. I don't know. But it's... I don't know about this because... You know, everyone, the big thing on everybody's mind right now, and I, I don't know if Disney cares that they have two competing franchises happening, is that um, Infinity War is still going to be riding a high. It's going to still be, that train is going to be rolling along um, right up until the time that Solo comes out. And so I uh, I think... I don't know, man. I, I, um, it's a weird thing to see this with a property like this. Now, granted, the, like I said, the trailer looked great, and Donald Glover looks amazing as Lando. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm still kind of unsure about uh, Solo himself. I haven't gotten to see a lot of him. He hasn't really talked. This is the most he's talked. I think he had three lines in this trailer. Um, so I don't know. It's just weird to me that they're going this route. There's not really been any marketing. I don't know if there's even any toys out yet. Typically, that's a thing with Star Wars that a couple of months prior, you'll at least get toys. I haven't seen anything like that. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with this movie. I don't know. Um, uh, there's only so much that you can carry on with the the name, but. I honestly forgot that this was coming out in May. That's how little you've seen about it. So don't rely upon people being aware, you know, because it is summer. You're uh, taking a really, you're taking a greater risk, Vader, with this release and what, what time frame you're doing it, especially with one of the biggest, massive, most ball-breaking blockbusters of all time being released 28 days before your film. If you don't push it, you're going to get it lost in the shuffle. So, 
I understand that, you know, you've made your money back on your Star Wars films already, Disney, but it's a disservice to the characters if this movie is good to just dump it. And that kind of feels like what they're doing. We'll see, I guess. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll go from there. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. Um, really quickly, I wanted to bring up something that's pretty awesome. And that is the, uh, the resurgence of horror at the box office has been kind of growing. Um, it kind of started with the release of... Uh, the Conjuring a few years ago, and that franchise has really been building steam and helping horror kind of come back to its own in the in the box office realm. And uh, you know, with it and a few other films uh, that have shown that horror is profitable, horror can make money. Um, with like Insidious and things like that, um, it's been really growing. And the big surprise this week was A Quiet Place just cleaned house with a $50 million weekend. This is while you've got blockbusters like, you know, the the train that is Black Panther still make going strong and kicking butt. Um, and you have Ready Player One, which is a Steven Spielberg movie out there. Uh, and yet this little quiet film... Um, that has been getting great word of mouth, even though you don't really talk a lot in the movie, has just weekend, which is pretty amazing. And um, a lot of people may not even know about this movie, but uh, I think they will now. So right now you've got uh, A Quiet Place came in at $50 million over the weekend. Uh, and that's And the number two spot was literally half of that, which was Ready Player One. And randomly, Blockers, which is cock blockers. And uh, Black Panther moved to number four. But that movie has made almost $700 million. Which is pretty freaking amazing. Um, and then I Can Only Imagine was fifth place. Uh, but yeah, the uh, now what is sad though is Isle of Dogs. Which I don't know if that's still... Got, I think that's supposed to be getting a wide release. Um, is number 10 with a, it only made less than 5 million this weekend. Total uh, of that is $12 million. But I have to say Quiet Place, everybody, um, I think that was projected for 35. And the fact that it made 50 million bucks on its opening weekend for a horror movie um, with a concept like what it has is pretty damn awesome. So good on you, A Quiet Place. Way to go. Um, I feel bad about Ready Player One, and I have a little bit that I'm going to talk about, um, later on about that movie. Um, but before we get to that really quickly, I do have to say one thing that I find amusing. Um, Doctor Strange 2 is already being talked about because I'm going to guess he's not going to die in Infinity War. Um, he's got too much of a franchise left. But uh, I think Scott Derrickson and company were talking about doing this, the second film. And they're talking about the uh, the villain for that piece. And the one they're talking about having is Nightmare. Um, and so I have to put in my bid right now and say that if you really, really want to do some stunt casting, that would make people go, yay! Um find Robert England and have him be your bad guy. Go. Go, go get Robert England and have him be Nightmare. The press writes itself. Um, so yeah, that's my 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 Doctor Strange 2 casting mojo that I'm putting out into the universe. If you're going to have Nightmare be the bad guy in Doctor Strange 2, cast Robert England. That's all. Um, so really quickly, uh, my little rant on Ready Player One. Ready Player One was freaking amazing. It was an, an awesome film. It was everything I wanted. I cried. I loved it. It was a great, great geek movie. Just beautifully done, inspiring. Just a lot of love for everything that we love. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. I love the fact that they made Halliday look like an old Gene Wilder. Down to the hair that Gene Wilder had right before he passed away. The white curly hair. 
just everything was amazing in this movie. I loved it so much. It was just fun as hell. Great characters, beautifully shot, just fun. I, I can't say more than that. I mean, it was everything I wanted it to be. Um, that being said, the Ready Player One marketing just failed this film. And um, even though it's made like close to $100 million now, that's still nowhere near what it cost. And uh, my only hope is that it does more on video and DVD. Um, you know, it would be funny if they released it on VHS because that would be smart uh, marketing. But um, uh, the movie just it's it's gonna it's gonna fail i mean there's no way it's gonna make it back at in the theaters i don't think because it has just been the, the marketing campaign just killed it. it there there really was no marketing for this movie or, and then what they did they didn't do what they should have done with it um so that being said i i i really feel like you know go see ready player one in the theater it really is fun to go see in a, in a movie theater in 3D, in IMAX, with your friends, with all your geek friends, no matter, you know, it just is a celebration of being a geek and, and, and fighting for what you love. And it's also a really good parable on what's going on right now with net neutrality and all that stuff, too. There's a lot of things going on in this movie that's just brilliant and beautiful and great. Um, but like I said, they didn't know how to market this. It, I, I don't know they did I, I saw that they did those parody posters but that was about it there really wasn't anything done marketing wise to help promote this movie and I mean to the point that I heard a Simon Pegg interview talking about this movie but it was literally a week after the movie had been released and that made no sense. I didn't really see much of anything happening with this film. And that's really sad because I really loved it. It was my big movie for the year. And I it, it lived up to everything I wanted it to have. That being said, like it, it has just kind of felt like it's been dumped by the, the studio. Um, Warner Brothers isn't nailing it when it comes to marketing. <laughs> Um, uh, they've, they've kind of not had a lot of good luck so far this year because Tomb Raider really hasn't made a lot of money back. Um, and as you can see, Ready Player One, it made more, but it hasn't, it dropped 40% in its box office in this week. So, yeah, um, it makes me sad and I'm kind of angry about it because this, this story and this film deserved better. And uh, they really kind of dropped the ball. They don't really, they didn't really know how to market this film. And it's evident in what's happened with it. So, yeah. Um, I would say this. Go see Ready Player One this weekend. Go, go see it. Enjoy it. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, it really, really is good. And if you're a fan of The Shining... You're in for a treat with this movie because it is fun as hell. They really go out of their way to, to just celebrate all things geek in it. And I loved it so much. It deserves better than what it's got. So that was my rant about Ready Player One. Um, thank you so much for listening to my rant. Um, so let's get to our interview segments. And we're going to start off with Ben Edlin and Griffin Newman. And then we will uh, go into our Jim Mickle about Hap and Leonard um, and talk all things Hap and Leonard. And like I said, if you're not watching Hap and Leonard, there's something wrong with you and you really should be watching it. Um, that is on Sundance. And uh, if you are interested in watching The Tick, then you'll have to have Amazon Prime. Um, but... Uh, you will enjoy the heck out of both of these. And uh, you, uh, I mean, Sundance actually, FYI, is really good about putting episodes on their website for you to stream for free so you can get kind of hooked so you'll, you'll know what's going on. Um, but yeah, check out Happen Leonard, the season finale um, for the um, 
Two Bear Mambo, I believe is this season. Um, oh, I'm so, yeah, Two Bear Mambo. Is that right? Yes. No? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Two Bear Mambo is this season, and um, that is, the season finale is this week. So you still have time to catch up because they're not very long seasons. Um, and then, uh, as I said, Amazon Prime for The Tick. Uh, all the episodes are up right now, I believe, for that. So you can just marathon the hell out of the first season of The Tick. Um, so let's get to our interviews, and I will see you next week on Fangirl Radio. I, I know I've only got you for 10 minutes, so thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I appreciate it. A pleasure. Um, and I saw all the episodes, and it was fantastic. I am a, I, I love the original series. I love the cartoon series. I love the comics. This was freaking awesome. Uh, so thank I just got out of the way. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Well, so uh, this first question is for kind of both of you. And um, I wanted to get both um, from uh, as a writer and as an actor in this. The Tick manages to skewer your typical comic book and hero cliches, but it manages also to walk a fine line of being really sweet and really touching. Uh, at the end of this, I was... I actually was tearing up a little bit because it's such a, a beautifully sweet scene with Griffin and, and everyone. Can you talk about writing that and, and balancing that as well as acting it when it comes, because when it could have come across so campy. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it, we had tone was the sort of the fixation of this project. So those moments where, we're able to complete a superhero kind of quest or a superhero action, achieve a legitimate moment of like hero graduation or a moment where the character that we care about actually achieves their, gets their job done and you really care. Yeah, that was, that was one of the early goals was to make sure that somehow in the process of making this show, we wouldn't lose that because I think from the cartoon on, or even the comic book really, there's something about the two, the friendship between these two characters that evokes a warmth that wanted to have a real expression in this thing, especially when we were going to shed as much uh, blood and uh, uh, cuss, blood and cuss as we were planning. <laughs> It, it really required uh, warmth to counterpoint that. I also think, I mean, I've, I've spent too many uh, bad first dates drunkenly ranting about why superheroes are important <laughs> uh, in my real life. And like, so much meaning in that beginning yeah. of an answer. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I'm giving you a lot. I, I respect that, though. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, you know, um, this incarnation of the tick. Uh, particularly, I feel like Ben has hit upon a lot of the themes that I, I think make storytelling mythology so resonant and why I think it's, it's an important sort of tapestry to tell stories in because this notion of uh, people uh, suddenly coming into power choosing to do the right thing, wanting to distribute that power onto others or towards others or against the wrong others or whatever it is. And, and Arthur really kind of embodies a lot of what I love about superheroes. He has so many reasons not to do anything. You know? There's so much at stake, and yet he chooses to keep on fighting. And I find that very heroic. So, I, you know, you just... I think that's very noble and genuine, and Tick is a genuine character to a fault. He's incapable of being anything other than himself. Um, so it, it's very easy to play that uh, sincerity because it's it's there and it's earned uh, in the scripts. Well, and, and like you said, I, Arthur's backstory and just the trauma and the fact that everyone coddles him and acts like he's insane is mm -hmm. is just you really are like Arthur. Just don't even bother, but you uh, do, yeah. and it's so it's awesome to watch that, and it gives you know it's an inspiring thing. And even, you know, he, it takes a lot of push and pull before he, you know, I, I think accepts that he's going to be a, a quote-unquote superhero. But even when we start the season, the fact that he's got this whole wall up, that he's going out at night and scoping out, you know, uh, seedy uh, crime bases, like he's a guy who can't turn it off. 
you know, he is so innately compelled to search for uh, reasons or answers, uh, you know. I, I think even when he's telling himself that he's incapable of doing anything, to change anything, because the whole world has told him that for most of his life, he still is looking for the answers because, you know, he, he, can't, he can't turn it off. Right. And, and kind of going along with that, um, this is uh, for Griffin, but Ben, feel free to pop in. I really love the rapport between you and Peter slash the tick. At, at first, you can't figure out, it, it, it was something that I was debating with my husband when we watched the first couple episodes, was is the tick real in this or is he, is it all Arthur? How much of the story did you know ahead of time and how did you work on the camaraderie there? Because that's such an important part of the show. And I liked how it kind of, you didn't know if this was just a, a manifestation of Arthur's psyche until partway through. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I'm not talking just about our, our version here. I'm talking about, you know, the, the Tick and Arthur as a, a duo that have survived for 30 years. You know, right. and that doesn't happen by accident. There's some central thing that people are latching onto that makes them this... Um, sustainable as characters across different mediums. And I think it is that they kind of have this beautiful uh, id ego thing. They're kind of each one half of a successful person. Uh, <laughs> the tick is everything you want to be externally. You know, certainly as powerful as you want to be physically, but the confidence, the lack of self-doubt, the sort of um, go-to-itiveness and the sort of just very straight compass in terms of I, I will head in the direction that is true without mm -hmm. hesitation. And Arthur is the awareness and the consideration and the intelligence and the processing and all of that with very little ability to act. Um, so I, I think, you know, a key to it is, like, a lot of this season is the two of us as, like, uh, you know, people doing a three-legged race, figuring out how to coordinate our limbs together. Um, that all-important central limb. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, our, our motor functions have to be lined up. But I also think, I mean, Peter and I both come from comedy backgrounds. And so we were very collaborative in our performances in a way I think actors aren't often, I certainly hadn't thought that way before, where we knew uh, we had to make a performance together that was bigger than the sum of its parts. You guys would actually provide each other with notes. Yes. We give each other unusual. notes and lines and uh, things like yeah. that, which is odd to do and usually would sound like a nightmare. It's but it's sort of an etiquette transgression from which you could right. not... Yeah, but that worked great. But my, like, overly sort of simplistic metaphor I use is that, like, you know, I could work on finding my pitch as Arthur, and Peter could work on finding his pitch as Tick, and that's all well and good, but if we don't harmonize together, the show doesn't work. So we had to really just kind of roll up our sleeves and drop our egos and just go, like, we need to build something together that's, that's bigger, so let's keep on pushing and pulling until we find that right sort of uh, tune for us to sing together. Well, kind of hopping off of that, how much, because um, I... We probably have time for one last question. Oh, gotcha. No worries then. Um, so, ah, uh, what one do I pick? <laughs> um, you've, okay, so you have, uh, this is kind of back to Ben, uh, you've got two ticks as producers on this show, um, which I find fascinating that you've got uh Peter and, and um, Patrick on there. So kind of off of that, what did you want to see happen in this series that you didn't get a chance to do the first time around with a live action show? And what did you uh, not want to lose? Well, uh, the, the thing that we're working with now, which I think we've talked about sort of at length from different angles, is the idea that we wanted to maintain a, a story and a, and a sort of a a sense of uh, drama and that you would care. It's a very strange sort of combination, but in The Tick, the last thing to do was to build a saga that actually got people to really have those emotions like the ones you were describing about at the end of the season, where you really sort of feel like you've been through something emotionally. So that was something that we wanted to breathe life into with this new version because it's up to this point been more about the humor and not as much about an ongoing story that gets you, uh, you know, engrossed. Uh, but making, 
bring, not forgetting, as we bring in the blood and bring in the steaks, the danger was it was going to get cold. And um, there's been warmth in this thing all the way through, from the beginning all the way through to what Patrick and David Burke brought in the live action in 2001. That warmth is something that really needed to survive if this was going to mean something and evoke those feelings, and that's what Griffin and Peter had to get together and kind of engineer all anew. Ben has talked about before, and it was, uh, you know, I, I think in like our 5,000 of our press tour when we were <laughs> promoting the first half of the season and our brains were almost burnt out. We're fresh right now. This yeah. is the best we Yay. ever have been. <laughs> but, but, he, but he said, and I hadn't heard him say it before, and it, it kind of stuck with me, the idea that um, the, the Tick and Arthur have a sort of emotional intimacy that you rarely see men have in storytelling with each other, you know? They are two men who are very comfortable admitting how much they care for each other, are reliant on each other, you know? And I feel like a lot of male friendships are, especially in comedies, are then couched with the sort of like, uh, you know, really icky, no homo, we don't want to have them confessing too much adoration for each other sort of thing. And the Tick and Arthur are two people who know they need each other and care about each other deeply. And that's something that I think really connects with people in all the versions that have existed. Somewhere along the line, they failed to receive the guy memo. Yeah. And now they're just wandering around. Just two people. Just being friendly to each other. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love you and Danger Boat. You and Danger Boat are my ship. No pun intended. I I do yeah, you ship, are you, ship are you boating or shipping? Yeah. <laughs> That's the new term we have to create is boating for when a character is shipped with a non-human character. I am excited about the term relation boat. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so, so much. This was amazing. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and, and I hope to bring you guys back on um, later on when you uh, have more time. Cool. Well, thanks for great. talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome Jim Mickle to Fangirl Radio. Uh, Jim is the man, uh, part of a two-man team that has brought us a even more amazing two-man team, I'm sorry, Jim, and Hap and Leonard to to our TVs, brought them to life. I'm very excited to talk to him about this show because it's one of my favorite shows on TV and one of my favorite books series of all time. Jim, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, And yes, I want to really, really, really like bow at your feet for bringing Hap and Leonard to life. I don't remember how Uh. I discovered them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember how I discovered these books, but I have read all of them. And I've told everybody to read them. And uh, you've, I, I didn't think it could be done. I didn't know who could really play these guys, but you have created. You've, you've made them come to life, and I love it so much. Wow, well, thank you. That's great to hear. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan as well, so it's, uh, it's nice to hear that we've, we've done, it, done Joe some justice. Oh, man. And so kind of hopping off of that, I, I, the, I try to describe these books, and I try to describe Joe Lansdale's writing, and what I've come up with is Joe Lansdale reminds me of – sort of the bastard offspring of Mickey Spillane and Mark Twain, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, that's great. How did you yeah. discover him? Because I'm curious, because I-, I always talk about him, and it's like some people know him already. And right. his work is just so different and amazing. Um, but I'm curious how you, how you discovered him. Well, I was... Um... I was always a horror fan uh, growing up, still am. And um, I had, when Bubba Hotep came out, it was playing um, at the Angelica Movie Theater in New York. I think my sister and I remember were driving back over the Holland Tunnel and coming across um, uh, Houston and saw, you know, Bubba Hotep Midnight Show tonight, Bruce Campbell in person. And, you know, the Evil Dead trilogy and Army of Darkness was, you know, kind of my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Growing up, I mean, I must have seen those movies a million times. So I thought, oh, great, you get to go see <laughs> Bruce Campbell do this Q and A, and and um, and then we showed up and saw Bubba Hotep, and was just like, 
what the like where did this come from you know it's such a uh it's such a crazy concept um but you know but it also has this thing that this twinge of of heart i think that joe does that some some other kind of weird offbeat authors don't always have and so i just loved it and thought whoever wrote this i got to check out more stuff and and it was based on a joe lansdale novella um that uh that i went out and read and then I remember just going through at some point to a to a used bookstore and kind of taking up everything that they had at Joe's and um in that pile was Cold in July, um, which was one of the first ones I read. Um and I just fell in love with that book and, and that was what that was what led to making that movie. I think we optioned that in two thousand and seven and then uh took like another seven years to make a movie out of it. But it, that was kind of the beginning of our uh our long-standing life and relationship with Jill and his work. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned uh, Abba Hotep because I, I saw that in a, in a, a screening here in, in Oregon and um, it, it made me bawl. I cried because I literally <laughs> like a couple of months before my grandfather had passed away and you're right. Mm-hmm. He manages to, it hit me just right. And it man, he manages to yeah. make these, these crazy characters have so much heart. And I think that's part of what happened Leonard. It's so, it's so ridiculous that you have a a gay black man at the time and where he lives in these books, but you, how he manages, it's so ridiculous, these situations, but you love them. You love them so much and you don't want to see them hurt. Um, Yeah. And that's why I was like... a great job of, of really tapping it into um, people that you know. You know, um, there's, uh, I think a lot of times, authors or storytellers will kind of just fill with imagination, will just come up with insanity or for insanity's sake. But I think he does such an amazing job of always kind of relating it to um, to reality and, and grounding it in a way that it really feels like a world that exists is just, has that little twist on it you know well like you've with the three the three um seasons that you've done i I just saw i i saw the two bear mambo premiere and it's Mm -hmm. just chillingly perfect i i i got it i i want to talk about nick playing satan and drinking his own piss (laughs) it's its own thing later but um but (laughs) which i was like oh this is Fuck, this could be fucking great. Uh, but uh, you, the thing with Mucho Mojo that uh, I think you added more to than the first season was the whole supernatural bent and how you utilize that to really grab the the tragedy and the truth of the racism and the hatred in that in that story and in that and, and still going on, sadly. But. Yep. Um, I mean, did you did you want to go further with that? Because you are a horror fan, did you yeah. want to kind of add that noir? That that I, I guess it would be. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an element of well, to back up a little bit, I think one of the challenges of adapting Joe is that so much of what makes his writing great is his writing, you know, and that's something that you know, it's a tool that you don't necessarily have in the toolbox when you're translating to film because, you know, we always kind of will joke in the writer's room like, ah, Joe just gets away with things that you can't get away with all the time in straightforward um, film or television translations because he's able to kind of couch it in a way, like his just his voice, his style, his mannerisms, his way of approaching plotting at times. He's able to pull off things that... Um, just shouldn't work. And, and, and he kind of does it with such expertise. Um, and part of it, I think is that folklorist thing that he does so well. Um, and so I think that was, you know, we played with a little bit season one. I remember there were some things that we tried and then didn't quite work and we had to cut out. And I think we were always kind of trying to poke around the edges, but I think Joe does a lot of his, in his stuff with dreams. I think he, you know, a, a lot of times half will have a dream and, and there'll be something in there that, I guess we did a little bit of in season one with like the, when he goes underwater then dives deep and the birds appear, you know, there's like yeah. a little bit of magic realism there. And I think we kind of kept finding that 
things like that were were working and it was helping i think to make it feel like joe i think it was making it feel like it had some of that folklorist thing in there and then i think um last year obviously that that came about a lot i think with the Ilium moon character i think um a lot of those aspects poked through and i think um you know, I love Joe that he's able to tie so many genres together. Like, it feels like he watched all these great old classic horror movies and yeah. movies and, you know, read um, Dashiell Hammett and, you know, and had all these noirs kind of built up and, and all these paperbacks and pop culture art and cars and driving theaters. Like, he has all these different kind of genres and then he sort of pours them into his head and it spills out into this, into his stories, you know. Um, so I think we wanted to find more ways to create that. And that's something that um, I think really worked last season. And then this season, I think really worked. Um, I'm really happy with how it pulled out. And it's obviously fun as a, you know, as a filmmaker and as a, as a genre filmmaker and horror fan to get to um, play with those aspects in there and yet still get to deal with what is really a, um, a comedy, a hard hitting, you know, dark humor, but a comedy, I think it just makes it fun that you kind of get this whole, this whole stew to play with. And I I think it also, that was something that I think we really narrowed down on. And I think this season we really honed it in and focused it is, is it's not reality, you know, Um, it's close and there's like echoes of reality. It's 90% there, but there is a little bit of a warped thing that goes on and I think when you know that there's a slight fairy tale, slight fable, uh, slight folklore, sort of a bend to this stuff, um, it really sort of opens up your receptors, I guess, to be able to receive it kind of in the most calibrated way. And I think that's what his books do that I think we're, we've learned um, the, the sort of the filmic language of that in a sense. Well, and I, I like that each of them kind of feels like their own I don't want to say movie, but their own enclosed story that ties together, but you have a different feel for them. Like, like you said, Mucho Mojo has uh, more of a supernatural bent. Savage Season had more of a uh, crime, crime thing, but they all have that tinge to them. And I got to tell you, I, I, how I'm telling people, you know, I'm trying to get people to watch this more and more. It's already got a great audience, but I'm like, no, you don't understand. You have to watch Happen Leonard. <laughs> is I sell them with that final shot that you did in Mucha Mojo, which is so chilling, where you're yeah. you're seeing this woman just doing laundry, and you they pan over and you see the 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 clan robes, and you do that pan up. It's the most beautiful shot in terms of just yeah. capturing the essence of the show, where you have these two characters who are th- going to always be threatened because of what's going on in that area and how they get tied into all of this. And I think it's just a great, great shot. Yeah. Thanks. That's Tim South. And that was, uh, he directed our last two episodes last year. He did a great job. And yeah, I agree. It's, um, I've really been psyched with the way that we've been able to leave our seasons, um, on a great, uh, wrap up yet. Um, cliffhanger is always, you know, it feels like his books, you know, I always get to the end of a chapter of Haplin or, or a, a lot of his stuff and feel like I can, oh, I can move on. And you get to the end, you're like, God damn it, he's hooked me into another one. <laughs> yeah, he's never going <laughs> to let I think you that, go. Well, that, was, that I also wanted to go back to for the, for the, with the folklore and the supernatural thing. I think another thing is um, the bottoms. I don't know if you read that. that yeah, yeah, yeah. That he wrote. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously um, very To Kill a Mockingbird inspired and I, I mean that in the most loving way but it always had this sense I think especially because it was from a kid's point of view you know that there was always the sense that the world they were sort of coping with it with the supernatural thing I remember the goat man in the woods was always just such a powerful um, image and always there's a haunting supernatural thing to it that I think in, in that book I think really kind of helped serve the the kids narrative, but I think um, that was something else that I think informed this. So it's also like, I think all of Joe's work has sort of informed uh, some of that mingling of genres. Well, so kind of coming back to this season uh, and I, 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 I know I'm going to run out of time with you, but I've, I've got, I, God, I love this show so much. Um, 
<laughs> this this season, you did Nick demand to play Satan? Did he want? Uh, that? No, we had to talk him into it. <laughs> we had to talk him into it. He was, you know, he was. You know, we've kind of flirted with ideas in the past couple seasons of where it might make sense, and never quite made sense um, where it was to play, and then. You know, I think it started as a joke in the writer's room. We were like, all right, we're going to have this devil. He's going to pop up, you know. At first, I was always thinking full-on devil. You know, I was thinking, like, we're going to go full makeup. It's going to be this cloaked figure with horns and glowing eyes. Like, I really wanted to go horror and kind of fairy tale with it. And then I think John had the idea that it was just going to be a, a guy in, like, a perfect, you know, 30s suit. And um, so, you know, I think over... <laughs> There's always little running jokes of like, oh, that's who Nick is going to play. And whenever we come up with a character, it's going to be something, something shitty. And then in this one, it just kind of stuck. And then, you know, I think we kept going forward. And then at some point we got to casting and it was like, well, who are we going to find? Well, I mean, who are you going to find that's better than Nick? You know, he's just got that kind of iconic, uh, really old fashioned kind of debonair look about him that is like, you're never going to find better than this, you know? So I remember calling this up and I was like, you know that joke? I think we might really want to do that. Would you be into it? And he's always, you know, especially with this show, I think he's always, as a writer and actor, you know, um, uh, you know, this show, he's wanted to, I think, keep a, a, a separation there, I guess. You know, he's always like, I'm here, I'm a writer. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. not, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not here for that purpose or so to speak. So I think it was fun to get to do something that, you know, it took a couple of days to shoot or something, but uh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> that, that scene is so great. And he looks so perfectly <laughs> like you're, mm -hmm. you just want him to twirl his mustache a little bit, you know, totally. Yeah, totally. it was yeah. so good. Um, and kind of talking about that too, is this, this show gets so many good, cast like you know like cast members yeah. you've got the first yep. season you had jimmy simpson just being a great villain yep. you know the second yep. season you've had ryan dennehy and i gotta say i yep. i with it's funny how much a bruce campbell fan you are because i always picture bruce campbell's hap i i, yeah. I don't know funny. why <laughs> but that stuck in my brain but james purefoy has nailed it yeah, you, yeah. It, yeah. and it's so funny because he's british but i know <laughs> I love but them. <laughs> can you talk about, you know, like casting this show for each season and, and the leads? Yeah. Because I, yep. they're perfect. <laughs> I know. I know. It was really hard. You know, um, you know, we had that pilot script and I think people really loved it. And, and we had, we got a lot of attention from, you know, agents, you know, calling about their clients. And I think, you know, we were casting it right at the time when like TV was like really, really, really heating up. You know, this was 20... 14, I guess. Um, obviously, it started before then, but it was really heating up, and just everybody is unavailable. You know, everybody is on a show. Everybody, you know, anybody of any sort of note or who you really love, it's like chances are they're on at least two shows <laughs> at one time, like James Riffoy. Um, So it was really difficult, you know, because you start looking, you're like, oh, you know who would be great? And you're like, ah, you know, they're on this, they're on that. At that point, James was on the following, you know. Right. Um and so I remember at some point talking with Joe and saying, oh, you know who would be amazing is, you know, Chalky White from Boardwalker, you know, uh, Omar from The Wire. Like, and right away I was like, oh, yeah, Michael K. Williams. Oh, yeah, he'd be great. So it was kind of like, yeah, but he's not going to do it. So who, <laughs> who's like the new Michael K. Williams? So that was kind of how we started the whole process. And then we did a lot of, we did a lot of auditions, you know, a lot of people read. We had casting in the U.S., in the U.K., and even in Australia, because I remember there was, there was sort of a wow. sense of like, you know, when you're looking for those leading men, um, Australia is sort of the home to a lot of them. It's like, okay. So all the we were getting auditions. <laughs> What's that? All the Hemsworths, all your Thor guys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Get us a so you have, you know, uh, 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 you have like, so, you know, you have such a big pool that you're pulling from. And I remember we kept going, we kept going, we kept going. And I remember thinking, you know what? No, I feel like we want... We want some real, you know, some known people. You know, these are fun roles. We want some known people that really get to sort of mix it up and try something new. And um, we just, you know, couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. We ended up doing a lot of auditions. I remember at some point we were kind of down the road and pretty close to casting a guy who I think had done some soaps in Australia. And I remember <laughs> we were like, we're just going to make this guy a star. And then kind of out of nowhere one morning, um, we got a call from Michael K. Williams' agent saying, um, 
Michael would like to read this, you know? And we were kind of like, oh my God, yeah. You know, we had heard that he was unavailable or, you know, or if he was available, he wasn't going to be interested. And so uh, all of a sudden it was like, he, he might be interested. And then it was literally the next morning. It was like, you know, Michael read it. He loved it. Can he come in to meet tomorrow? It was like, oh my God, this is kind of perfect. Like, how do we not screw this up? Um, <laughs> And he came in and was just so charming, so sweet. And of course, it was just like instantly, boom, you're, you're the guy. And I think he really, uh, you know, appreciated that he got to do humor. You know, I remember him saying, like, I never get to be funny. I never get to be funny. So I think, you know, he was really excited by that. And then um, while we were in the middle of that, um, we were still, we did a bunch of tests. We were still, we were getting kind of close in some other halves. And then Michael texted at some point and said, you know, do you know, James Purefoy, or like, of course, you know, but he's on the following. And then he wrote, you know, well, after Wednesday night's episode, you know, coming up, spoiler alert, he might be available. Um, and, and in real life, you know, he, they'd done a whole other TV show together called The Philanthropist. And he said, in real life, you know, um, we are a kind of a Happen Leonard, you know, we have this sort of brotherhood that goes back many years. And if there's ever anyone to play it, it's James. And I was just like, geez, if we could get that, that would be, that would be kind of perfect. Oh man, um, fantastic. And yeah. And then, yeah, Joe Carroll ended up getting, leaving the show that week. And then I think James called me from an airport at some point when he was like leaving <laughs> to go back to the UK, kind of saying like, I can hang around if this is, if this is something that might work. And then it came together very quickly. Um, and then, you know, and then I got to say, it's the first time when it comes to casting, it's the first time that it's just been in my, you know, I've been doing this for like 12, 13 years now. It's like the first time that casting is just kind of effortless, I have to say. It's so great. I mean, we have Ellen Chenoweth and Suzanne Scheel, um do our overall casting. And, you know, they just have great instincts themselves. But it's also like, I remember last year, for example, we were like, they were saying, okay, who is, who is this character? Who is Valentine Otis? Like who in your mind would play this? And we were like kind of a, a Brian Dennehy type. That's who we've always talked about is like a Brian Dennehy type. And then literally like the next day, it's like, can you guys meet with Brian at four, at four o'clock tomorrow? He lives in Connecticut and he can come down. And then it's like, boom, the next day, Brian Dennehy is sitting at the table telling these stories, you know, oh and it's God. like, boom, that worked, you know? Um, Lou Gossett, I think I met with season one because Michael had worked with him and loved him on Boardwalk and um, said, you know, um, uh, I think we brought him in to play Uncle Chester um, season one. But then he came in and we were like, you know, I love like Lou. Oh, shit. This is Lou Gossett Jr. And he's like, you know, he's perfectly sharp and nimble and he's so smart and we're just talking through everything. And then it was like, man, this uncle Chester character, he's there for one scene and then he dies, you know? So this doesn't really feel like this is a, the best way to use Lou. Um, and so we sort of always had that in our mind and then the season, it, it, it kind of worked, but I have to say it's the one scenario where you kind of go through and you're like, Oh, it should be this type of an actor. And in a lot of cases, we wind up getting that actor. It's pretty amazing. That's awesome. So I got to ask, because uh, like I said, I've read the books and I love them. And I love the character of Brett. It, when mm -hmm. you get to her, I, yeah. I know who I see in my head. But I'm curious, who would yeah. be like your dream Brett? Um, probably Vanessa Shaw from, from Cold in July. Do you know her? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. She's great. I, I love her. And and we had been talking to her about Trudy season one, and we were kind of like, ah, oh, you know what? You're kind of a more perfect Brett. You know, you're you're um, there's just kind of a spirit. There's a spirituality thing that goes there. You know, um, there's that sort of cerebral thing. Um, you know, the brunette. You know, I thought that was just kind of perfect. So we, yeah, we've always talked about that if it ever gets that far. But who knows? Who knows what will, what will happen? Uh, yeah, because I, was thinking? I yeah. was thinking Rene Russo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love Because I always, I always see Brett as a tough, tough broad. And, and yeah. uh, yep. he, he's, God, he's still gorgeous. I mean, he's a beautiful woman. But, he is, I know. Yeah. But, yeah, that was he in is. my head was I was like, oh, who could play Brett? Oh, yeah. This is Yeah, I love Rene Russo. <laughs> great. 
<laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so, well, that's the fun, you know. You think of someone, and it's like, boom, the next day they're on set. <laughs> I know it's crazy. It's so nuts. So I, I kind of speaks to Joe's work too. I have to say, you know, I'd love to say that it's just because people want to work with us and well, want to do the show. Totally. But really, the characters he creates are just like you just want to sink your teeth into them. You know? Well, and I I read the drive-in um, the drive-in tri- I think it's a trilogy. Is it a trilogy? two-parter yep. trilogy? Yep. I got the gi- I got the giant omnibus of it, and so yep. it's like one giant Bible for me. But I I love those, and I it, like his his. I don't know how anybody will ever be able to to make that into something. I don't know. I I, I yeah. if you guys can they, do it, if anybody could do it, you probably they probably tried. You know, I know they've tried some different versions. There's been some cool people on the way that have tried to put it together. And at some point, I think they were going to do a television series based on it. And they've tried to, you know, there's been a bunch of attempts, I think. And, I, and a couple of times, I'm like, oh, that thing's going to get made. And, and then, you know, and then you don't hear from about it for another year. So I, I wonder what's happened there. But, but I agree. That would, be, that would be great. So I do have to ask, though, because I know he's a character in one of Joe's shorts um will, will we ever see joe bob briggs show up in happen leonard at some point because he's a friend of our show <laughs> ah he yes he'd be awesome <laughs> he'd be awesome he belongs in this world totally yeah <laughs> yeah um, i guess it would kind of depend where we go you know we've talked about where where it would go what the, what the next book would be you know are we going to follow the order um, you know, a lot of things I think depend on, you know, A, if the show gets picked up, uh, B, you know, will they pick up one at a time? Do they pick up more? Do they do a longer season? You know, there's a whole bunch of decisions that we are, uh, not privy to. And I think that will kind of dictate where the, I guess, where the show goes and, and, and who comes in through that, I guess. God, that'd be, I, I would love that. He's so funny. He's a yeah, funny dude. I love him. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I, I know him. I've, I probably kept you too long, but I, I wanted to ask you because Happen Leonard kind of speaks to this and Joe's um, work speaks to this as well. But right now it seems like genre and, um, and horror and sci-fi are getting, they're finally, they're getting the credit they deserve with what happened with the Oscars. Can you talk about, cause I know you did this with, with Mulberry street as well. Um, and we've had it in Stakeland and late phases, even with Nick's work. Um, can you talk about using genre and and these typically thought of as, oh, that's just a horror movie, to talk yeah. about issues and things like this? Because that's one thing with Happen yeah. Leonard. I freaking love how you guys, you're, you don't have any, you're not afraid to talk about it. You're not yeah. afraid to put it out there and show the ugliness. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, I, I, again, as a horror fan for forever, you know, it, it, it still frustrates, frustrates me when people don't take it, um, don't give it the respect that it deserves as a, as a, as a genre. I mean, I think on the one hand, artistically, it's the genre that allows the most, I think, freedom, um, and, and high degree of difficulty too, to, to sort of pull something off. I mean, what you're, what you're able to get, what you're tasked with doing, you know, and not to put down other genres, but I think there's a lot of genres where it's like, you know, it can kind of look like anything. It can sound like anything, you know, it can kind of be cast with anything. It's like, there's such a, um, I think, craft to pulling off really great genre material that is really hard, you know, like they say, like, you know, comedy and horror, kind of the hardest things. And, and with Joe's work with Happy Leonard, it, it, it's both of those things. So I think, when it's done right and you see a great example like this year, shape of water and, and, uh, um, uh, get out, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, you, you see the, the, I guess the different spectrums of it too, you know, there's the sort of classy old school, large scale cinema version. And then there's the scrappy, it's really smart, really inventive, really fresh takes on it. And, and I think that's great. Um, and, and it's nice to see people starting to, to click with it. Although I was frustrated. I talked with someone yesterday who, you know, is kind of an older New York gentleman, and, and we were talking through stuff, and, and, and uh, he's like, you, know, you watch the Oscars, and I typically don't really um, care much for the Oscars or the award season stuff. I said, yeah, you know, I, I, I like Shape of Water. I thought that was great, and, and I thought Get Out was great. And they were, he was like, yeah, you know, I guess Get Out was good. I guess I just didn't really appreciate what it was doing and i was just like how can you not I mean, how did you miss that 
how do you miss it? And how do you, you know, and, and, and even if you miss it, like, how do you not just look at that and just go, oh, my God, this is just such a perfect, you know, it's a, it's a you know, from just a story, like, cinema sort of history sense, the sort of the Stepford Wives, um, fresh take on that, but also, I mean, the cultural thing, the race stuff, and how cleverly it used all of that and put that into something um, that was so fresh and so smart and, and, and just hit, you know, there's a, there's a thing about that that I think, and, and hopefully we pull it off in, in Happy Leonard too, that it's like some of these things are so big and they're so deep. Some of these issues, the, you know, stuff about race, stuff about class, um, you know, stuff about war or, or um, 9-11 with Mulberry Street or, you know, the sort of political divides in Stakeland and, and all these things, it's like, if you imagine it's a song, it's like if you make that your main melody, it's too much. You know what I mean? It's it's too it's too much to eat. You know, if like if that's the meatball in your spaghetti, it's too much. <laughs> but there's a way that genre, when it's done right, I think can turn those into the harmonies in a way that I think is really interesting. I think that's what Get Out is like the perfect example of that. Is all that all those issues of race aren't. Um, you know, if he came out and preached that stuff, no one would want to watch it. You know, it just wouldn't be interesting. But the way that he managed to marry it in this harmonic way that everything just rung true and you're able to sort of make those connections yourself is so smart and allows you a distance, I think, to talk about things in a, in a really, you know, in an entertaining way. And you know, obviously the, the fact that it was as successful as it was, I think, is great. And, and that's something with Joe that I think we've tried to tackle and, and we always have to sort of maintain that is... I think it's really easy to, especially this season with a lot of the race stuff, just how relevant it was and a lot of the alt-right stuff and, and, and um, that stuff that is just so ugly and so in your face, unfortunately, on the news every day in a very real, very normalized, unfortunately, way. Um, what Joe does is he, he manages to take that and do, there's a smart-ass thing that he's able to do with it in a, in a uh, I hate to say a humor because that stuff isn't funny, but there's a way that he's able to give it a, a personality and a spin that keeps it entertaining. And so even though you're sort of wrapped up in this kind of dime store novel plotting with his, his voice on it, it's dealing with these really real issues. Um, and I think that's important. I, and I'm glad to see that movies are, you know, every, every year it seems like you kind of start to think like, Oh, horror movies are being taken seriously in a way. And they sort of aren't always, you know, I think, I think if, if, if that was true, I think Get Out would have gotten even more love this year. Um, but it's a step, you know, and, and I think hopefully it opens the doors and opens people's minds a little bit more to what they can be. Well, and I like how Get Out did it and how you do it with Happen Leonard with you make it, you show how scary it really is. Like, yeah, you, yeah. you don't avoid how scary it is. Like, the whole, like, for Get Out, for example, some people didn't catch it, but the whole drinking the milk separate from the colored cereal and it's like <sighs> that's just disturbing i um, for some reason that scene just gets me and i don't it's like oh god it's that deep and then with happen leonard like that like i said that perfect shot it's because it's just right there and it's normalized and that's what's terrifying about it and uh i really i really like that and it's subtle but it's it's like oh and it gets yeah. you. Yeah. So yeah. I, well, I, I, you guys do great with that. I, I just got to say, but um, Jim, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I, I, I really love yeah. talking to a, a, a fellow horror fan and what you guys yeah. do is just so good. And I love these well, books so much. So you guys are doing them justice, which is fantastic. Thank you. And it's good to hear, you know, we just finished episode six. We shipped it off. Like, I guess like a week and a half ago. So, and that's been, you know, in our lives since this time last year was when we started talking about the season. So it's kind of like you go through these years and then you give birth and then you just kind of sit there like, wow, what did we just do? You know, <laughs> what, what, what just happened to us? <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's nice to hear that it's, uh, people are connecting with it. You know? Oh yeah, no, you totally <laughs> are. And, and, and thank you so much for doing it and, and doing it so well. And, um, so do you know if there's going to be a fourth season yet or are you waiting to hear? 
We don't. They always, um, you know, it's uh, it's up to the corporate gods at this point, you know. Um, you know, every year they'll kind of tell us, like, you know, at some point during the season we'll probably have an idea with the numbers and the this and the that, and we'll probably be able to give you an answer. And, and it's always the same. It winds up being, you know, you, it airs and you don't hear anything for, you know, another three weeks or something or a month or I think – after season wrapping. one, I think the whole thing ended, and every every day, you know, you're waiting by the phone, and then it winds up being like two months after you're done and <laughs> moved on in life, and and they and they call up. So, I you know, I think it'll be the the same thing this year, but I don't know. I think it's 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 literally a fifty fifty thing. You know, it's uh, uh, it could come back. I think it would make sense to come back. I think you know, I think it's a good marriage of of creative and and the. Uh, the network and the outlet, I think all that's great. Um, but there's also, you know, the television landscape changes so much and the, and the economic um, realities of that, I think, change so much. And, and I think a show like ours is, um, and a network like Sundance is probably riding right on the, it's in a very narrow track where I think it really um, makes sense from a financial standpoint. I think at the end of the day, it's always about finances, unfortunately. So yeah. Um, so we'll see, you know, the more people that watch it and talk about it, I think really, um, that's right. Helps, helps to keep it alive, you know, that is right. Well, Jim, thank you so much again. And, um, everybody yeah, watch happen Leonard Sundance. The first two seasons are on Netflix. Watch that. That always helps too, because I want to yeah. see more of these and I want to see Brett come to life because that's my girl. <laughs> I love Brett. Um, so <laughs> thank you again, Jim and, uh, watch happen yeah, Leonard guys. You. Thank you. Bye-bye.